to look tonight in another message in Hosea. Uh, I told you at the beginning of our consideration of the book of Hosea that uh, there were at least eight different sermons after I studied it carefully, looked at it. And uh, we're in the seventh one, which means uh, we're not going to have a lot more time left in this great Old Testament book. Uh, but the seventh one was all about God's love for his people. Uh, Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. As they called them, so they went from him. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. A father's love. We began our consideration of this message a couple of Sunday nights ago. And we observed how that the scriptures speak often of our relationship with God as his children and he as our father. And I would hope that we could never lose a sense of awe and wonder when we read John's expression in 1 John chapter 3 where he said, Behold what manner of love the father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God or the sons of God. Behold, <laughs> behold. It's something to be astonished at. What kind of love is this? That God would call you and me, my child, you're mine. Behold. Galatians, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26 then. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Many, many wonderful passages tonight I could mention. Some we considered before, but we were just scratching the surface of all of those passages that speak to us of God's love for his children. Uh, we noticed in God's tender compassion. That was the first thing we saw. Uh, in Hosea chapter 11 and verse 4. I drew them with gentle cords with bands of love. And I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. I drew them with gentle cords. If you are a child of God tonight, there was a time in your life when you lived your life without a relationship with God. You were separated from God and His love. It was not that God had left you. Oh, no. It was that you had decided to try to live your life without God. It may have only been for a short time because you were saved as a child. It may have been many years. You might could look back on years, months, and years of time when you struggled because you were separated from God and you were trying to live your life without Him. Uh, some of you may have been religious. You may have been uh, baptized as a baby. You may have been christened and confirmed if you prefer that language. You may have attended church. But in spite of all of those things, you had no relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And in fact, the Bible says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Though you were physically alive, you were spiritually dead, separated from God, under his condemnation. Left to yourself, you would have died and spent eternity in hell. Plain and simple. Can't say it any, any simpler than that. How do I know that? Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 11, there is none that seeks after God. In our lost condition, we don't seek God. God is a seeker. That's why Jesus Christ said, I am come to what? Seek and to save that which was lost. 
And he puts it in that incredible statement here in, in, in chapter 4 or chapter 11 in verse 4. I have drawn you with gentle cords and with bands of love. And I was to those who take the, I was as those who take the yoke from their neck. God draws us with gentle cords and with bands of love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God drew us with gentle cords and with bands of love. He does this to remove the yoke from our necks, he tells us. Because sin had us in bondage and enslaved. People often think of sinning as freedom. Sin doesn't get you free. Sin brings you into bondage. Every time we do something God told us not to do, we are putting a yoke of bondage upon ourselves. It makes us its slave. God comes through Jesus Christ to save us, woos us with those bands of love and draws us unto himself to remove those bonds of sin and set us free. That's his tender compassion. We also saw his troubling concerns. Both of those things were there and they're still there. Everyone can identify with those emotions that God expressed. We know what it means to look at somebody with both great sympathy and significant aggravation. Amen. <laughs> huh? I, I, surely, I, I see four people nodding their head. Don't, I, surely, y'all know what it's like to look at people with both great sympathy and with significant aggravation. And so God was very faithful in pointing out what it was that was causing him these serious concerns. And Just a quick review. Uh, he talked about how they refused to repent. He talked about how they insisted on going on in their sin and rebellion. He spoke of how they were walking in their own counsels because their resistance against God and they were robbing uh, themselves then of the Spirit's leadership and direction. That classic expression, he said to them, you're bent on backsliding like, like a tree that is bent in a certain direction. You're bent uh, to backsliding. They were lying to him, lying to God. And as they were trying to lie to God, of course, God knew the truth. So actually, they were deceiving themselves. The ones they were really lying to was themselves. They ended up as people then who say, well, I know what the Bible says. And that, unfortunately, is what a lot of people say. Even when they don't say it aloud, even when we don't say it aloud, sometimes that's the way we live. Well, I know we do know. We know God said not to do this, but we do it anyway. We know God said to this, do do to do this, but we don't. And we know what the Bible says. And as serious as it is then, when we sin with full knowledge, I mean, we sin, we know we're sinning. We know it. As serious as that is, it's even more serious when somebody says not, well, I know what the Bible says, but... It's when they say, I don't care what the Bible says. And that's the world that we're increasingly living in. We expect that from the world at large. After all, I don't know if y'all figured it out by now, but sinners sin. Lost people sin. And they kind of like it. They do. They live 
Well, they're living in the darkness. That's Ephesians chapter 2. But it's sad when we even see God's people turning away from the authority of Scripture. And we are seeing that happen in American Christianity in droves. I fear for the generation that my sons will be ministering to by the time they're my age. I fear for it. Pray for them. You say, well, I believe Jesus is coming back. You say that? I do too. I do too. I hope it's soon. And if it's not, there's a crisis coming to American Christianity. It's already here. It's building right now. And it is because so many within the realm of Christianity are not just saying, I know what the Bible says, but they're now saying, I don't care what the Bible says. Not interested. It's just an old book. I heard one preacher, preacher, talking about not too long ago how the Bible was just put together by a bunch of old white men. That's what he said. It's a terrible thing to say about the Word of God. God was then seeing all these things as they went in this direction. And there came a time then, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, when God said, that's it. I'm done. And I reminded you, when God says, that's it, that's it. God's not a counter. All right, I'm going to count to three. No. <laughs> God, God was done. He said, this is it. And so while his love then, in his love, we see the Father's tender compassion uh, we see his troubling concerns, but tonight, tonight we're going to look seriously at this timely correction because we're going to see what it's like when he says in Hosea chapter 13, verse 12, the iniquity of Ephraim was bound up, his sin is stored up. That is, that he had sinned all that God was going to allow, and it was time for him to move. So we're going to look at what happens when God begins to chasten a nation. How does God so move in chastening? So that a whole nation would be impacted. Uh, we certainly know what it means for God to chasten me. We know what it means for God to chasten us individually. I can say that with full confidence because that's what the Bible says. That God chastens every son whom he receives. And if you be without chastisement, of which we all are partakers, the Bible says, then you're bastards and not sons. Uh, you're illegitimate. You're not really sons at all. If you're my child, God says, you get chastened. That's what the Bible tells us. Plain language, you say, yep, God speaks plainly. And so I know what that we all know. We all know. We've all experienced it. If you're truly saved, you have experienced from time to time the chastening of God. If you think that means that God is punishing us, rethink your thinking. God chastens us. He is disciplining us uh, not to punish us because Jesus took our punishment at the cross of Calvary. He is disciplining us, chastening us then to change us. To move us away from a dangerous and maybe even deadly path. To change in us. To correct from us the things. Maybe the attitudes. The thought processes. The, the language. Uh, whatever it is. God is working to change us. That's what chastening is all about. Sometimes, yes, it is very painful. 
It is. That's why God compared it to scourging in the book of Hebrews. He scourges every child whom he receives. Jesus talked about it when he was talking about the pruning of the vine. Uh, I had never messed with grapevines at all until a few years ago. And our church in Benton uh, bought an adjoining set of property to us that had a working muscadine uh, I don't know what you'd call it, plantation, what do you call it, vineyard, I guess, vineyard, there it is, working muscadine vineyard, and for the first time in my life then, I got to fool a little bit with grapevines, it's fascinating to me, uh, we kind of figured out, we asked around the church, there was a, being a good Baptist church, is there any volunteers, any of y'all know how to work with these grapes, no, no, so we called extension office and called a couple of colleges, before long we found somebody that was going to school and getting a degree in how to, how to take care of grapevines. I'm going to tell you what, when that guy was finished up with those grapevines, I thought they were dead as a hammer. It had some of the most beautiful vines growing out there. I mean, they were growing everywhere. He cut those things down to the nub. thought we'll never see another grape (laughs) we had an amazing harvest you see Jesus talked about the pruning of the vine if you abide in me he said you'll bear much fruit and my father then is the husbandman and he'll come along and he'll lift up those vines he'll He'll prune them. The ones that aren't bearing fruit, he snips them away. Chastening. Sometimes we might say to God, God, if you keep cutting, there ain't going to be much left. God knows. God knows what in our life needs to be snipped away. Chastening. Yes, tonight we know about that chastening process when God moves in that way on us individually. We know what that's like. What does it look like when he moves to correct a whole nation? That is an interesting concept. Hosea 11 verse 9. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, then his son shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria, And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. God then began to move in chastening for the nation. He he tells them, I'm not coming to destroy you. I'm not coming to execute the fierceness of my anger. The first thing that God does is roar. (laughs) Roar like a lion. Now, I have never had the privilege of going uh, to Africa, never been there, never been to a place where the lions roamed free at night. And those 
five and six hundred pound animals running like a pack. I can't imagine what it's like to hear the lion roar in the darkness. But those people did. Uh, they knew what it was like. And so God's first act of, of turning that nation back was to roar so that his people would come to him in repentance. And with the roaring that was being put before them, then they would run to God who would protect them and restore them. God describes this by saying, when they return to me, when they run to me, when they respond to me, when they run trembling to me, he says, I'll let them dwell in their houses. They'll have a safe place. I'll restore their families. It's contrasted then in Hosea chapter 12 and verse 9. Where God says, but I am the Lord your God. Ever since the land of Egypt, I will again make you dwell in tents. As in the days of the appointed feast. If they thought that their prosperity would protect them. If they thought that they had these safe and secure houses that would protect them. And the lion began to roar. They were wrong. God said if they didn't return to him, they would end up dwelling in tents or huts or booths. Which provides very, very little protection against the ravenous wild beast. This describes a people without a roof over their head. And so when God began to describe how do you turn a nation back to God. How do you move in chastening against the nation. God describes a people then who didn't have a roof over their head. And who were living in tents. It ought to get our attention tonight when we look in the United States of America and see our great country being turned into a refuge of tent cities all over this country and right here in our own state. It ought to get our attention when we see people. It looks like a third world country in some of these places. That's exactly what God is describing, a refugee camp place where people don't have a house to live in. Don't have a roof over their head. Living in tents and in squalor and unsanitary conditions. It's one of the things then that God does when he begins to chasten us. He roars against a nation. People then begin to lose any sense of protection. All their prosperity gone. Living in tents. In Hosea chapter 12, verse 10, I've also spoken by the prophets and have multiplied visions. I've given symbols through the witness of the prophets. Verse 13 of Hosea chapter 12, by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. And by a prophet, he was preserved. By a prophet. That prophet that brought him out of Egypt, of course, was the prophet Moses. By a prophet, Israel was preserved. That would have been the prophet Joshua and many others after them. Now God says, I have spoken by the prophets and in multiplied visions. I've given symbols through the witness of the prophets over and over again. God had sent the prophets to them. They'd placed themselves in great personal peril. They'd often paid a very high price for standing before God's people and saying, Thus saith the Lord God. They spoke the truth of God. They called to them. I love that passage that said, I have hewn you, God says, by the prophets. I've cut you down by the prophets. 
when a nation or a people or a church loses then their appreciation for their God-called spokesman, for their prophets, when the ministry of the Word becomes a burden instead of a blessing, when we begin to treat the Word of God with disrespect or disregard, when a nation is so bent to backsliding that they just scoff and mock and persecute the men God sends to them to give to them His message. Those prophets then become an implement of God's judgment. Part of the way that God moves in chastening a people is when the prophets find themselves having to take off their shoes and beat the dust off of them. I came here. I spoke God's word. Wouldn't listen. Jesus told us to do that. Over the course of my ministry, over the last 40 years, uh, I've seen us, and by us I'm talking about our association of churches. The American Baptist Association is what we're a part of. We send missionaries all over this country. I've been one of them. We've sent them out again and again and again to places that were underserved by churches. We've sent them out, preachers, places where there were It was not a strong testimony, not a strong gospel witness, not people preaching the message. And I've seen the results of that grow to a trickle, to a trickle. You can't imagine how difficult it is to go out with just your family to preach to and start preaching in a a new town, a new city, trying to declare to those people the truth of God. I tell you, there are great portions of our nation where they are living out a famine of the word of the Lord. I thank God for Faith Baptist Church. I do. I'm glad that I've got a church to preach to. I do. Uh, I'd be miserable if I didn't have one. And there'd be some ground somewhere around here that the grass would probably be dying on because I was preaching to the grass. I don't know. I'd find something somewhere to preach to. I'd aggravate the fire out of my dog probably preaching to her. Certainly Nancy. I'm glad I've got a church to preach to. I thank God every day for the respect that you give to the preaching of God's word. But, oh, dear people, don't think that that goes on everywhere in this country. It does not. Part of the way that God brings judgment upon his people is he sends them prophets, but their message is rejected. Hosea 13 and 3. Therefore they will be like the morning cloud and like the early dew that passes away, like chaff blown off from the threshing floor, like smoke from a chimney. God describes his ability to make a a people then be like a morning cloud, like the early dew, like chaff, like smoke from a chimney. Those are things that are gone without a trace. Gone without a trace. The morning dew evaporates. The morning mist evaporates. Chaff is blown away. Smoke dissipates. In a way, the chaff dissipates too. So 
the, 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 the morning mist and the dew, they, they evaporate. The chaff and the smoke dissipates. There's no sign that they were ever there. They're gone without a trace. Sometimes we get to thinking that we are so important. In fact, it's possible for nations of people and for God's people. And we see it certainly in this text in Hosea where they begin to think of themselves as being indispensable. But I, I want you to know we're, we're not indispensable. We're not. We are replaceable. <laughs> we are. Uh, there's not a one of us that God can't replace. If he keeps us here and keeps us serving. You listen to me tonight. I don't care if you're 80 years old or 18 or 8. If you're still here and you're still serving, then God is keeping you here for a reason. And you can count yourself blessed. Because you can be replaced. So can I. None of us are indispensable. One of the things then that God does to judge a nation turn them back to him as he reminds them of how easily they can be gone without a trace verse 7 Hosea 13 therefore I will be unto them as a lion as a leopard by the way will I observe them I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps and will rend the call of their heart And there will I devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself. Mm. As hard as it is to say this tonight, I'm going to say it anyway. Unless the United States of America has a revival, there's going to come a time when God looks down on this place and says... Oh, America, thou hast destroyed thyself. But in me, God says, is thine help. God describes himself. I'll be unto them like a lion and a leopard. I will watch them. I'll observe them. And then I'll meet them like a bear bereaved of her whelps and He describes an attack then on the heart. Uh, We work so hard to build up our lives and build up our resources, whatever they are. If we're not careful, we'll let those things in our heart. And slowly but surely, they'll pull our hearts away from God. We might see God tearing our world apart. And He can do that. But God isn't after our world, but He's after our hearts. People tell me all the time, preacher, you got on my toes today. I missed. The word of God aims for our hearts, not for our toes. God told us, rend your hearts and not your garments. Verse 13 and 15, we're almost done. The sorrows of a woman in childbirth shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long where children are born. Uh, Hosea thirteen fifteen. though is fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come, the wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness, and his springs shall become dry, his fountains shall be dried up, he shall plunder the treasury of every desirable prize. 
Lastly, then, God describes his correction under the figures of childbirth and a drought-producing wind. Childbirth and drought have something in common. They both begin slowly, almost imperceptibly. And there's a time when the woman asks, and I know that I've seen this five times and then lived it 14 times by proxy with my grandkids as they were born. There's a time when they say, well, is this it? You know, is, is, that, is, that, is that it? They kind of wonder, is it indigestion? Is it a contract? I felt a pain. I wonder if this is it. That answer gets, that, that question is answered pretty quickly. It doesn't take long. With our first child, I'll tell you a quick story. But with our first child born, Kristen, so many years ago, uh, she was due on uh, like December 30th or something, December 29th, 30th. She wasn't born until January the 19th. Uh, I was so desperate for a little child uh, uh, tax deduction that year. <laughs> I wanted it so bad. And it just seemed like such a good deal because we get that whole t- uh, child income tax credit and all that stuff. Uh, just and, and we'd only have to have the baby for two days and we get a whole year's worth of tax break for it. It just sounded like the best deal. I'll never will forget that, uh, that night, December 31st it was, New Year's Eve. Nancy started having some pain. and I'm going to tell you what, we lived in Morrillton then. I, I drove her all over that county. We went up every old, uh, uh, every old ba- uh, back road we could come to and drove her over rail tra- railroad tracks, bounced her around. I just knew. I just knew. Uh, you feeling anything over there? No, no. We were young and stupid, I guess. I don't know. But we did that. There comes a time when that question is answered. Is it time? Yeah. Drought's the same way. You go a week without rain, two, hmm, three, man, are we in a drought? I looked it up tonight, you know, 40% of the United States of America is in between moderate and severe drought right now. It's been two years, some of them two years now, in moderate to severe drought. 40% of this nation. But there's a time when you wonder, well, I wonder if this is a, is it a drought? Is it just a little dry spell? Are we going into a drought? Well, time will tell. You see, both childbirth and a drought start slowly. But then after a while, they they keep coming. They get worse and worse. Both questions are answered in time. Things become more and more intense. They leave no doubt. Hosea 13 and 16. Samaria is held guilty for she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces and their women with child ripped open. Hosea 13, 16. I saw a young pro-abortion advocate use this passage 
and in her estimation to show that pro-life people don't read their Bibles because if we'd read their Bibles, they'd find out, and she quoted this, uh, that God was actually causing them to abort their children. That was foolishness on that young lady's part. But she has millions of followers online, so just in case any of you might pick up on that and somebody from the pro Uh, abortion side of things throws this passage at you. Let's see what God actually said. He's describing his people then being under the worst kind of attack. When an enemy comes in with so much hatred in their hearts as to attack women and children, as to attack pregnant women, we call that barbaric. Barbaric. And it is happening in our world right now. As nations come in with such hatred, it is disturbing. It it is terrible when we hear about it, when we see it happening. When women and children are attacked and targeted. Barbaric. God was describing a state in Samaria then when he was going to remove his protection from them. And they were going to be the victims then of a horrific attack. And the words of Hosea, in fact, came to pass when the Assyrians came to Israel. But it says something when a nation then begins to see this kind of rampant violence, even against mothers and babies. I have to say it again tonight. I I will. I'll say it. It's been disturbing to me to see how many states have rushed to declare themselves sanctuaries for those who want to have abortions, even late-term abortions, since Roe versus Wade has been turned away. It's been disturbing to see how many governors I've seen on national television saying, we'll pay your way. We'll pay up to $3,000. No restrictions. We read this passage, and you see God is describing this as an example of barbarity, of what happens when civilization breaks down, when God's protection is taken away, and people go into the worst kind of depravity. You say it's awful. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Part of God's chastening on a nation is that civilization crumbles and the most barbaric atrocities begin to be committed with immunity and impunity. Well, thank God tonight we can close out with some good news. Because God told them, I did not come here to destroy you. I did not come here to do all these things to you. God was coming to them to save them, to rescue them. We can so reject God as to find ourselves plunged into total war and experiencing brutality that's almost unimaginable. Yeah, that can happen. But God's promise is still the same as it's always been. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways and 
seek my face, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His son cleanses us from all sin. Yeah, it's disturbing to read a passage like this one tonight that shows us what happens in a nation when God is beginning to chasten them, when God has said enough is enough. And this is what it happens. Would I conclude conclusively that God is saying that to America tonight? Well, if he's not, I'd say he's pretty close to saying it. Uh, What I can say is that this is how God moved in Israel long ago to turn them back to him. Not because he didn't love them, but because he did. Even when it came down to that point where there was nothing left for him to do but remove his hand of protection and let that evil foreign nation come in and wipe them out, carry them away captivity, even then, even then, his judgment was designed to preserve a remnant. And it did. It did. You remember the time when Elijah couldn't find any of them? He was up on Mount Carmel. This wasn't very far from where Hosea was preaching. Same crowd, same Israel, same Samaria. A few years before. Elijah couldn't find anybody up there on that mountain that night, that, was sent, that day that was standing with him. And it didn't matter that he'd called the fire down from heaven. And it didn't matter that he'd licked up the, uh, consumed the sacrifice and licked up the water and burned up all the wood. It didn't matter. He cried out to him. Nobody responded. He thought he was done. (laughs) He went running. Ran for 40 days. When God finally caught up to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Well, Elijah, well, God, you know, I've been faithful. I preached your word. I did all that. I fought against them. and, And now I'm the only one left. And they're trying to kill me. That's why I'm here. Do you remember what God told him? There's 7,000 in Israel left that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. There's a remnant out there. And when God is moving to chasing a nation, it's not to destroy them. It's to preserve a remnant. And I believe he'll do that in our nation as well. I want to be a part of that remnant. I, I want to be that. And I hope you do too. Maybe tonight, you know, someone here, someone at home, Thinks about how God was moving, God was working. You say, you know, I hear God roaring. (laughs) God's been roaring in my heart tonight. And I need to respond to him. What do you do? You run trembling to him and fall at his feet. Maybe you do that for salvation. Maybe you need to do that for revival. But whatever it is, you know when God knows. Right where you sit. Where you'll stand in a moment. You can do business with God, and I pray you do. Let's stand together, please.